0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you for all the people that make this magnificent meeting possible. I'm so very glad to be here. Uh, I'm Harlan. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I have been a compulsive overeater and I have been shackled with uh, weight and food as the number one issue in my life for as far back as anyone can remember. When I was a little boy, I mean a little boy, three and four years old. I have vivid memories of people screaming and yelling at my mother and screaming and yelling at my father about how fat I was getting, how much food I was eating, how could they feed me so much, how could they allow me to eat so much and blah, blah, blah. And I was very embarrassed for my parents in these scenarios. I was embarrassed that they had to go through this. I was embarrassed that I had to go through this. And when I was about five, six, seven years old, they started screaming directly at me. And they were well-intentioned people. They were the parents of my friends. They were rabbis at the synagogue. They were teachers. They were adult, excuse me, adults from the neighborhood. What, whoever they were, they basically sent me the same message. And the message that they sent me was clear, concise, and consistent and what was the message? The message is I am unacceptable the way I am. And I am absolutely unacceptable at the weight that I am at. And as long as I'm going to maintain this overweight situation, for as long as I maintain an overweight situation, I am going to continue to be unacceptable. Existentially, there was something wrong with you, with me. Existentially, there is something in error about you and your life. Somehow, some way, you are just not getting it that fat boys don't get girlfriends. Fat boys don't get good jobs fat boys don't get to be whatever it is, uh, airline pilots or whatever that is, or, or first baseman for the Cubs or whatever, as you can tell, or maybe not, I'm born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. I'm born and raised there. And from a very early age on, I did everything I could to acquiesce to their demands, Even as a six-year-old, even as a seven-year-old, I would do the best I could with tears in my eyes to try to control the amount of cupcakes I was eating, to try to control the amount of ice cream I was eating, and I just couldn't do it. Once I ate one cookie, I was gonna eat every cookie I could get my hands on. Once I ate anything like that, I went crazy for food. And I have a vivid memory of being nine years old and my mother screaming at the doctor in Yiddish and the doctor screaming at my mother in Yiddish. And when I was nine years old, I went on diet pills. I was on very heavy amphetamines at nine. And I have memories of the temples of my head just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding. And you can't really listen to what people are saying to you. It's like people are talking to me and it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, walk, 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 walk. I, I, what they're saying really isn't getting through. And I get accused of this now, but I would like say the same thing like 200 times. And I'm, I'm in my brain saying to myself, stop, stop. You've already said this a bunch of times. And I just couldn't stop myself. And you sleep about, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a month, but you don't eat. I mean, those pills kill your appetite when they wear off and you come down from those pills, if you're me, And you sort of crash is the only way I can really describe it. It's sort of like a roller coaster. You're way up on the hill and you come down and it's very kind of scary. But once you hit that bottom and all of a sudden you're going much more slowly, it's like a a crash and you start eating. You can eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. And from the very moment that I was born, what happened to me is probably not very different than what happened to you. I started noticing that in my state of not eating, I felt very alienated and very distant from the people around me. I felt very scared of the world that I was born into. I felt frightened. I felt different from. I kept trying to cheat off everyone else's paper to see what it was I was supposed to be saying, what it was I was supposed to be doing, what it was I was supposed to be wearing or thinking that would make you like me and stop the pain of this alienation. And when I couldn't do that, my brain locked in on the sense of ease and comfort that came instantly by eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There was something about that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That sandwich did something for me, not to me, for me, that nothing else that I was of this world seemed to be able to do. And what that peanut butter and jelly sandwich did for me was it gave me an instant sense of belonging. It gave me an instant sense of being okay. Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, says that that feeling is called the effect. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And the effect is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. And what he means by that is I knew that I was killing myself, even as a six-year-old, even as a seven-year-old. People would look at me and say, you know, you're killing yourself. You know, you're killing yourself. What I didn't want to tell them then, but I'm okay to tell you now is I really wanted to kill myself. I did not know how to live in this world. Every dream that I dreamed, every aspiration that I had, I knew in the back of my mind would be trampled on by the fact that I was fat. So I didn't even dare dream dreams. And Dr. Silkworth says that when I'm not eating, I am restless, irritable, and discontented. And you can throw in scared to death, angry as hell, jealous. You can throw in uh, all kinds of other emotions. What I didn't know as a six-year-old and what I didn't find out for several decades of my life was that food was never my problem food was the solution to my problem. So if food was the solution to my problem, what was the problem? The problem for me, and I I suspect most of us or all of us, is the inability that my brain had to handle the buildup of human emotion. Now, all human beings have happiness and fear and sadness and and happiness, and joy, and jealousy, and lust. All of us have these various emotions. But in my brain, as opposed to the normal brain, in a normal brain, these people have these emotions and they can go to the golf course and drive out a bucket of balls and they're fine or go to the gym or play with the cat or make love or have a glass of wine or whatever it is they do and they're fine. But not so with me. And what my brain would do to try to have me feel okay was to eat an ice cream sandwich. And I would try to resist this urge of eating an ice cream sandwich because I knew it was killing me, but eventually I would give in because the pain of not eating is so tremendously horrible, so gut-wrenching that I couldn't bear it and eating became preferable to where I was. Eating became preferable to the intense pain of not eating. And that's why diets would never work for someone like me. That's why willpower would never work for somebody like me. And so I would eat the food. And for about nine seconds, my brain would say, see, I told you. I knew you'd feel better if you just ate some Chips Ahoy cookies. And for about nine seconds, those Chips Ahoy cookies did something for me that nothing else could do. It made the world a beautiful place. I wanted to sing Kumbaya, and I wanted to buy the world a Coke, and I wanted to hold hands at the campfire, and I wanted to to dance in the moonlight because everything and everyone was okay for about nine seconds. And then about 10 seconds in, (sighs) sorry, the horror, the shame, and the pall of remorse was upon me about what I had been doing. But by then it was too late, because as Dr. Silkworth says, by that time I had triggered the physical allergy That allergy is a craving beyond my mental control. And the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And it's just endless. There was no end in sight to the voracious energy with which I pursued more food and more food and more food. And this went on endlessly. And I entered puberty and it was a nightmare. I was completely physically and emotionally emasculated by the time I was 11 or 12 years old. By the time I was uh, a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. By the time I was a sophomore in college, I was 500 pounds. By the time I graduated college, I was 600 pounds. By the time enough time went past I was breaking furniture. I was not wearing underwear. I, was, I had towels shoved between layers of flab to keep the skin from rubbing together. I wrote bad checks to anyone dumb enough to take them. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I broke furniture. I broke my friend's waterbed. I broke car interiors. I split my pants. People would laugh at me in public. I was an object of ridicule. Children would laugh at me in public and they would be cheerleaded on by their adults. On more than one occasion, people would come up to me in restaurants and take food off my plate and give it to the busboy and say, he doesn't need this, he's as big as a house and I didn't even know them. People would come up to me and slap my stomach and say, when's the baby hippo due?" People would come up to me in public that I didn't even know and say things to me like, you're enormous. What's wrong with you? What do you eat? Why do you eat so much? And I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. And so life became an object of terror. It became an existence of terror for a crime that I did not know when I committed it. I did not know what I did, but I knew that there was something out there that was trying to punish me. And my desire to die overwhelmed my desire to live. Eventually, Eventually, on February the 2nd, 1979, after my dad died, my mom had died two years previous. Two wonderful, marvelous friends pushed their way past the filth of my house. I lived in filth. I was, I was not filth, but I lived in filth. I lived in squalor. I lived in an apartment that was not inhabitable by human beings. There were all kinds of filthy pizza boxes and spoiled food and wrappers and all kinds of junk in my house. I lived in one pair of pants size 80. I couldn't button my seven extra large shirt. Every shirt I had had food stains and cigarette burns up and down the front of it. My food habit in the 1970s, not my cocaine habit, not my hooker habit, not my heroin habit, my food habit in the 1970s was $100 to $150 a day. My income was nowhere near that amount. And on February 2nd, 1979, two friends pushed their way past everything and took me forcibly, I owed a lot of money, uh, forcibly to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous in Skokie, Illinois. And I went to the meeting and I had to keep going to the meeting. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and three, 400 pounds fatter than any two of them put together. And the group of people that I saw that night in February of 1979 didn't look very different from the group that's on my computer screen tonight. And I knew that I had a problem with food, but wondered why you were there. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that people that have this don't all get to be five, six, 700 pounds. And I found out later that everybody goes through their own hell to get here. So maybe you never weighed five, six, 700 pounds. Maybe you never were close to that. Maybe you're bulimic. Maybe you're anorexic. Maybe you're a laxative abuser. Maybe you're an exercise bulimic. Maybe you get your effect by restricting the amount of food you eat and you get high from not eating. Now, I can't relate to that, but I can embrace you. So all of us have different behaviors and a different hell that brings us here. And nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here because things went well for them, do they? And I came in in 1979, and by 1981, 82, something very weird happened. Not only did I lose some weight, but I stopped smoking. Now, you don't normally come to OA to stop smoking, but that's what happened to me. I stopped smoking, haven't smoked in 40 years. And then I graduated, and I had a beautiful graduation ceremony. Maybe some of you have had the same graduation ceremony they said, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? And that was a beautiful graduation ceremony that I had. And I stayed out a little while and then I came back and I came out and I came back. Only this time, you guys snuck some stuff into my big book that I had never seen before. And the first thing that caught my eye that you guys had snuck into my big book was on page 58. And it said, if you want what we have, and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. If you want what we have. And I questioned, I was questioned by someone who was very wise and very wonderful. He said to me, what is it we seem to have here in OA way that you want? And I said, well, you're not overeating. And he said, there's people at McDonald's right now. There's people at Dunkin' Donuts right now that are not eating. They're not overeating. He said to me, what we have here in Overeaters Anonymous, hopefully we do, are people who are not compulsively overeating and who are compulsive overeaters, but they're not compulsively overeating and they're doing it Happily, that's a terribly constructed sentence. Let me revisit that He said we have compulsive overeaters here who are not eating compulsively and they are happy in their release In other words, they're not white knuckling it and I see so much of that in meetings today I see so many people dieting with group support They're just kind of going to meetings, they're dieting and they're calling in their food and they're talking about their food and they're making their three outreach calls a day and going to three meetings a week. But they're not really having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps so that they're not getting that neutrality that's promised in the big book. They're just kind of hanging by the chandeliers, stark raving abstinent. And I see a lot of that in OA today. And the other thing he pointed out to me was on page, on page 58, it says, if you want what we have, and you're willing to go to any length to get it. And what does that mean? That means I'm going to have to do work. And the work that I'm going to have to do is not going to just be coming to meetings. I'm gonna have to work the steps and I'm gonna have to live in 10, 11 and 12 every day for the rest of my life. Because as we talked about before, the buildup of emotions was the problem, food was the solution to the problem. But it begs the question, what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing that power into the equation is simply called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening that comes about as the result of the steps with none of the devastating, death-defying side effects. And that's what this is really all about. And so I would have to do what it was I needed to do. And on page 77, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That's pure Oxford group. That's pure Oxford group. And what the Oxford group was telling me was that I was going to have to change from a self-centered person who only thought about me, 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 to a person who in a healthy way thought of others. What's the difference between alanonic and codependent helping and, and, and healthy helping? When I have an expectation of result, I'm in the alanonic condition. When I have no expectation of a result, I'm giving from the heart in a healthy way. And then it was pointed out to me, the thesis line of the big book. And the thesis line of the big book is on page 45. And it simply says... The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And when they started talking about God, I got off the boat and I was not happy because God didn't make me thin. God didn't bring me a girlfriend. God didn't bring me money. God didn't help me when I asked him to. See, God's not my bitch. God isn't here to bring me what I want when I want it on my terms. God is here, but I have to walk to him through effort. And when I walk to him, he runs to me. But I had to stop thinking about God the way I was taught. And what I was taught from life, and I don't know how I learned this, is there are fortunate people and unfortunate people. And I'm one of the unfortunate people. Because if I was truly fortunate, I'd be thin. And so these other lucky people, these rich people, these people with trust funds, and these people with big families, and they're very, seem very lucky, and they're together, outsides never matched up to my quivering, broken, scared to death insides. And I found out that I was gonna have to spend as much time on step two as I ever did on step one. And I see so much of that in our way today that goes by the wayside. We talk about red light foods and yellow light foods and green light and purple light and blue light, and we talk about all that stuff, but we don't talk about our concept of a higher power enough We don't talk about that. And I walked around with a concept of a higher power that I would not want to meet in a dark alley. God had let me down. God embarrassed me. God let me be the object of ridicule. But I had to change my perception of that higher power if I had any chance at all of recovery. So I had to work on step two with the same energy I worked on step one. And in my many years in recovery, I see people all the time struggling and where they're struggling more is in two and 10, two and 10. Those are the steps that are the most underutilized or two and 10. There's a lot of people dieting with group support. Don't even know how to do a 10 step. And they've been in here years and they don't have a mechanism with which to negate the effect of the, of the emotions. Lack of power was my dilemma. And so this 10th step unleashed that power through the action of step 10, 11, and 12. And then I noticed something else. I noticed on page XX of the forward to the second edition, it says on page XX of the forward to the second edition that of 100 people that came into AA, 50 of them got sober at once. Of the remaining 50, 25 got sober. And of the remaining 25, they showed improvement. That's 75% recovery. Now, I have done big book retreats and big book conventions as far east as Jerusalem, Israel, as far west as San Diego, California, as far north as Anchorage, Alaska, and as far south as, I don't know, Arizona or, or whatever, San Diego, I guess. I don't know. And it's been my privilege and my honor to travel the world in service of OA. We can't I've been everywhere. We can't talk about 75% recovery. We can't talk about five percent recovery. We're lucky if we're recovering at two, three percent, and that's generous. What's the difference? Because we keep getting away from the blue book. Now, maybe some of you recover and you don't use the blue book. God bless you, that's great. For for people like me, that's what I need. Maybe you don't. Maybe you maybe there's people who don't like this book. Whatever that is. If it works for you, that's fine. But I'm telling my story, and for my story, I got to adhere to the blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the only way that I know to recover. And the further Adherence I have to the book, the stronger my recovery, and the more I dilute it, the more I get away from it, the weaker my recovery gets. Now it's fun to tell you that I've lost over five hundred pounds. That's fun. That's great, and it's fun to tell you that um, I'm alive, and I'm my cardiologist considers me a miracle. He says. The mathematical chances that you'd still be alive are about zero, and that's a lot of fun to tell you. But what I wanna talk about, because we're getting close to that time where I'm gonna be done here, I'm gonna be done in about 14 minutes, maybe less, is that this adventure is the greatest adventure that anybody could have ever written. There were decades of my life where I begged God for a sudden death. I didn't want to live. I didn't know how to live. I didn't fit into my desk at school. I didn't fit into my clothes. I didn't fit into the world that I was born into. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years of age. I wouldn't wish the loneliness and the asexual existence on my worst enemy. The only time anyone touched me that wasn't adversarial was every other month when I went to get a haircut. I wouldn't wish that on the worst of you. I wouldn't wish being an object of ridicule on any of you. I wouldn't wish it. In the book, it says the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this two more years. Mine endured it a lot more than two more years. I wouldn't wish it on any of you. But today, I'm going to use Roseanne's words. Yes, there are things about my life that I wish were different. They have a name for people that wish certain things were different. They're called human beings. We all wish this could get a nip or that, a tuck. But I have a life today through the wonderment, the miracles of this program, I have a life that's very much worth living. I have a life that includes people. I have a life that includes purpose. I have a life that includes God. I have a life today that is very, very worth living. There are people in my life on a regular basis that I speak to from Europe from America, from all over this country and other countries. I have seen miracles in this life beyond anything I could ever have comprehended. But I've never seen a miracle greater than a compulsive overeater who is biologically afflicted with an illness that condemns us to eat ourselves to death or starve ourselves to death, living free of that desire and doing so happily. I've learned a lot. I've learned that when I walk to God, he runs to me. And I've learned the wisdom of page 88. And on page 88 is a profound sentence. It says simply, it works. It really does and I have found that this program does work. What I have also found is that many of us don't work it, and that's okay, that's not my business. As long as I work it, that's the only thing I can possibly control. And I learned along the way that abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. I hear this in meetings all the time. Abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception, false. Abstinence is a requirement. But the most important thing in my life without exception, well, I'm going to let the book tell you. It's on bottom of 14. It says, my friend, Bill's talking about Ebby, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. In all my affairs... Particularly was an imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us. It is just like that. So what that's telling me is I must work with other people. I must put myself out there. Now, there are three characteristics to this disease other than the allergy and the twist of the mind and the mental blank spot. And the three characteristics are described in chapter three of the book. And in chapter three, more about alcoholism, most of the information comes from a book that was written in 1931 that became one of the books Bill used to frame the big book, and it's called The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. So vital was this book to the framing of the big book that Bill Wilson's copy of The Common Sense of Drinking is in the AA archives as we sit here tonight. And what did that book say? It said that the disease is permanent, the disease is progressive, and the disease is fatal. Permanent, progressive, fatal. That is what the disease is. So every day of my life, what I've learned is I have to do a little bit more than I did yesterday with no expectation of return. And the more of an expectation that I have of a return, the less effective my efforts are at thwarting off the disease. I must divorce myself from any and all expectation of return. And what I've learned is, is that in working with others, in working with those people, there is no greater joy. There is no greater miracle. You know, I love the OA birthday. I go to the OA birthday every year. I'm very lucky. I live in Arizona. It's not a very far flight for me. One hour. I'm in Los Angeles. I love the OA birthday. I don't miss them. And on the morning of Feb uh, Friday, you know, because it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On Friday morning, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning, there's a bunch of people that I know that are going to pile into Ubers and they're going to go to the beach in Los Angeles. And that's great. And God bless them. And they go and they come back and they, oy, ve is mere, oy God, what a miracle the sun came up. And that's great. But my definition of a miracle is something that occurs and there's no logical explanation. The greatest miracle I've ever seen in my life are the multitudes of compulsive overeaters like myself for today that are not compulsively overeating and they are doing so happily. And why are they able to emancipate? Because of the miracles contained in these steps that worked as if your hair's on fire, worked like, there's, like your life depends upon it, I will become free of that desire to compulsively overeat because the emotions will not be allowed to build to that toxic level. And when those emotions do not build up, and the fear and the anger and the happiness and the jealousy and that feeling of apartness, that feeling of being different, And that temptation that I have to go to unhappiness through the shortcut. What is the shortcut to unhappiness? It's through the town of comparison. And when I compare, I will always be unhappy because my quivering, broken insides will never match your together outsides. And through the working of these steps, The desire to compulsively overeat is simply not present. If that's where you are, God bless you. If it's not where you are, join us as we trudge this road of happy destiny. There are sponsors out there. There are people out there. There's a book. There's a program. It works when we work it. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. So many of you have accomplished such great things in your life. I wish I had the time in life to get to know every one of you. But the one thing we can't do if we're compulsive overeaters is control the amount we eat once we start or stay out of the food now that we want to. Because of a disease that we did not choose, because of a disease that we did not cause, we can't cure and we can't control. Am I a compulsive overeater because of my mom and dad? No. Am I a compulsive overeater because I went on my first date at 35? No. I am because I am. What am I gonna do about it now? And the realization the honest realization that I am a compulsive overeater has to be part of what I am and who I am every day. And so now what I've learned is my ability to accept what Dr. Silkworth says in his opinion will mark the urgency with which I will work the rest of the steps. If I've accepted what Dr. Silkworth tells me in the doctor's opinion, then there is no hesitation anymore. There is no no wavering anymore. I'm going to attack the steps because that's my only way out. I don't have any other way out. I have been blessed by this curse. I wanted to die so badly. And God whispered on the one ember of my heart that remained unburned out, and it burst into flames, and my desire to live overwhelmed my desire to die. Now, we're all going to die. That's inevitable. But it's what we do. Most of the adults that I knew as a child were Holocaust survivors. Most of the adults that I knew as a child had numbers on their left arm on the outside. Most of them spoke in thick foreign accents. But united with each other, they would say to me as they grabbed my face and said, Shane, upon them, lose weight, they would grab my face and they would say to me, live until you die. Live until you die. I'm going to maximize every day of my life when I work this program I'm going to maximize my usefulness to God and my usefulness to others when I work this program. It is the greatest way of life imaginable. I cannot imagine anything greater than this. My life has purpose. My life includes people. My life includes God. And in the final analysis I made amends to myself. You know, we talk about not making amends to yourself in step eight and nine. I make amends to myself by being of service. And for the first time and only time in my life, I grew to like myself by doing self-esteemable actions in this program. And now I have a good relationship with me. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is to look in the mirror and not want to wretch at what I see. What a blessing it is to be able to walk among people and know that I'm not an object of ridicule. I hope sincerely that God will cross our path soon. I know that this program works. I hope that you will trudge it with us and I will pass with that. Thank you so much for having me tonight.